Well, this hour, we'll continue chatting with Lloyd Auerbach about the paranormal world, but we'll take your calls as well on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with Lloyd Auerbach. Lloyd, did you ever have any doubts about the paranormal end of the world? No, I really didn't, because when I, growing up and actually reading material from the field, uh, even as a young teenager and talking to parapsychologists in the New, New York area, I really felt that there was no reason why this phenomena could not occur, why people couldn't be psychic. So I didn't have any doubts. That it, I, there were some doubts about the interpretation of some things, but not that it existed. Have you ever been scared on some event? Not by the paranormal or psychic things, certainly by living people. <laughs> people scare you, right? Well, I mean, people can carry guns and knives, and you know, ghosts don't. Has the proliferation of ghost hunting and other paranormal TV shows called, caused an explosion of groups? Ghost yeah, hunters? you know, uh, what's really interesting, one of my students at the Rhine Center was also taking courses at, a, at her college in sociology. And for a project, this is back in 2015, she ended up creating a database, a spreadsheet of active ghost hunting groups that were or groups that had active websites. And she canvassed the web for U.S. sites, U.S. groups, and found, well, she stopped counting after 3,000. That was in 2015. And these groups tend to split because people infight or get bored or go off in their own direction. So there's probably more than 3,000 groups in the U.S. at this point, each one containing a lot of people. That is a lot of people. Yeah, it's a lot. What are they looking for? You know, I think that so many of them are really just looking to have an experience that matches what they see on TV. Um, I know that with the ghost hunting conferences, the paranormal conferences, they tend to be fan conferences, almost like a Star Trek conference, but for ghost hunters. Uh, They really aren't learning much. Uh, They're hearing their heroes from TV and other people that have kind of fallen into that realm talk about their experiences. So in some respects, some of them are actually trying to have, uh, trying to meet other people with the same kind of experience, the same interests. Some of them have a genuine curiosity, but for the most part, they seem to want to hold on to this idea that the evidence for them, and they keep getting the same evidence over and over again, is enough. And for us, it's not enough. We want to know what's really going on. Lloyd, you've written a lot of books on ESP as well, haven't you? Yeah, uh, well, I've written a number of books on uh, ghosts, that related stuff. I've written books like Psychic Dreaming, about which also covers mainly ESP work. Um, yeah. Co-authored a book called ESP Wars East and West about the U.S. and Soviet psychic spying programs with a couple of guys who were involved in that program. And, uh, you know, written a book on reincarnation, channeling, and possession as well over the years. Why do you think the U.S. stopped those programs? Well, um, that's actually part of our, our book. Uh, the reason the program stopped, Stargate stopped in 1995, was purely political when it came right down to it. Uh, but it was not just a political thing around the remote viewing program. As Ed May, who was the program director at the time, and Joe McMonigle, the number one viewer for that program, found out, there was a lot going on behind the scenes with the CIA. Apparently, politically, uh, this is when the Clinton administration was looking at shutting down bases around the country and kind of trimming the fat. And essentially, the CIA was on the chopping block, apparently, uh, or at least consideration of, of cutting their funding. So they, were, they had just been given 
the program back. They started as the organization, the government agency that was behind the program originally when it started, and it bounced, the program bounced around between other government agencies, ended up with the CIA at a time when the CIA was worried about their existence or what kind of funding they get. And any project that might have had been a problem politically and or socially, for that matter, which is to them, this was a, um, a woo-woo thing to many of them, uh, they kind of trimmed it. They got rid of it. And that's pretty much what happened to that particular program. There were some other factors that were involved also, but one of the things Ed May found out is that the CIA was doing a study to determine if they could continue the program, and they were supposed to be looking at all the records, all the data from the program itself over the years, the 20-plus years that had been in existence. But according to the man who boxed up and sealed the records to ship to D.C., to Langley, actually, when he checked those boxes at the CIA, after the report had come out saying that there was nothing to it, he found that those boxes were not opened. So they only based their decision on a very limited amount of information from the last couple of years of the program when things were already winding down, which is a big mistake. There's real success in that program. And, uh, in fact, Ed May has put it together in uh, kind of pilfered – or picked through the – he and Sonali Marwaha picked through the 90,000 pages that were declassified and came up with four volumes of the Stargate archives, which people can buy on Huge. Amazon. Uh, that is a huge, huge effort, isn't it? It was a huge effort. for Sonali was the one who really did it. Um, one of the interesting things is in the fourth volume, there are a lot of the political memos that explain how the program happened, and there were even uh, memos that were unredacted. Uh, she found memos that were, that were redacted by different people, the same memo redacted differently by different people, and she, she pieced them together and recreated some of the documents. With ESP, extrasensory perception, do you think people really have these incredible abilities? Yes, but for the most part, we they don't produce for most of us, except in certain circumstances, information that is any better than our normal senses. So we may be, when we think about what we're seeing and hearing, we actually may be incorporating in the perception process information coming from this other channel, the psychic channel as well. And it just simply is presented to us through our sight, through our hearing, because it's not really different enough from our sight or hearing that makes it, it doesn't make a difference for us. But then there, occasionally there are things that do pop up, and most people have these experiences where they get some information and they don't know where it came from, but they don't assume it's psychic. I mean, most of us are trained through our education system and our family and our religion not to believe in this stuff. That's why kids are more psychic than adults. That's true. Let's go to the phones east of the Rockies. We have Dallas in Rockwall, Texas. Dallas, welcome to the show. George, oh my gosh. Dina, I just have to give credit. She's like a two. She's so sweet. But I want to just... Lloyd. Lloyd. Yeah. Okay, I really am like torn and i think that i think tommy knows my heart i told him how hard it is i would go home my childhood home and i could walk in and feel relief it was like 
the ghosts were there. They were there. They were right there. It was like getting a, you know, I'm Christian. Could you, could you see them or just feel them, Dallas? Oh, I, it was almost like I could smell. I felt them. Mm-hmm. Everything in the world, Lloyd, I had to give my house up, and it's like, you know, like, 50 times the price now, I'm going to buy it back because I did, and I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I could probably do it. I really and truly, there were, there, my, everybody has passed away in my family, my first husband. Did they die in that house? In the house, my, in my, my house, and I know I'm, I'm kind of young for that to happen, but he didn't pass away there. But my father, my mother, everybody in my family, and I just was walking in, brush off, Lloyd. Lloyd, is it, is it a haunting if your relatives are there? Well, you know, with the relatives, would if it would be a haunting if the relatives had had been there and left kind of a recording behind but if they're actually interacting or aware that you are there when you walk into that house they may be trying to communicate with you um we find that a lot of people you know after they die they want to let their family know that they're okay uh this is what mediums do good mediums do also they they let you know that and the majority of experiences people have with ghosts are with relatives and loved ones, typically closer to the time of death, not necessarily where the person died at all, um, but where you are. And they're there to kind of give you comfort most of the time or to make sure you're okay. Is it natural to be scared of a ghost? Uh, I think so because it's natural because we're programmed to be afraid of ghosts. It's, the fact is that they're just the people they were when they were alive. And the problem here is that everything from our popular culture, the folklore that we grow up with, certain religions um, all downplay the idea that ghosts are just the people they were, uh, that there's something else going on, some sinister thing. And, you know, people don't change their personality after they're dead, nor can they really hurt us. They can pop up and surprise us, which can be traumatic sometimes, but they can't hurt us in other ways. Let's go to Norman in St. Louis. Welcome to the show. Hey, Norm, go ahead. Hey, great show. Um, Thank you. Yeah, uh, I heard your uh, guest talking about, uh, you know, the near-death experience and going through tunnels and whatnot, and uh, uh, I've had that happen twice in my life, like where I was clinically dead over 25 minutes, both from... um, wounds, one from a gun and one from a bow and arrow. And uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, when you say near-death experience, I say uh, you can leave off the end because (laughs) it's a death experience. But uh, anyway, uh, what happened with me was just identical to what, you know, most of the cases I hear on, you know, coast-to-coast where you went through the tunnel and blood, blood out basically and before the police and ambulance could get me where I had to go I you know clinically died and uh, went through a tunnel and there was light and when I came out you know I was pretty much in heaven but I could see angels and uh, my grandpa was there my Italian grandpa Joe and uh, 
two or three people, not relatives, but friends that had passed on, and there were angels there, and then I came up and met Jesus, and we talked, but as, I don't know, you know, everyone might be different, but I, I wasn't given an opportunity to um, make up a choice. I was kind of told, uh, you know, you have to go back and fulfill some purposes, and so I, it was kind of, actually, to be honest with you, it was very reluctant, because once you're in heaven, it's like uh, it's a was, whole different thing. It's it was more bliss. It was bliss. And everything. I've heard this before, Lloyd, that a lot of people don't want to come back. Yeah, I, we do hear that. Uh, and, and in those circumstances, those people are not necessarily, obviously, they're back because otherwise they couldn't tell us. But they don't want to come back because there is a sense that they remember that they knew so much more when they were on the other side, when they're in that, that world. Uh, that they were felt much more peaceful, so they don't want to come back. But they're either that we have something we have to do in life to fulfill individually, um, or there's a greater plan. You know, it's hard to say what that is, but we are told you got to go back. This is enough. We're just going to give you a taste. We're you have to go back. And then there are some people that are given that choice, but for the most part, I think people are just told they're they're going back. In that great movie that Robin Williams was in, What Dreams mm-hmm. May Come. Yeah. yeah. How true was that? Well, again, that's Richard Matheson's book, which is, the movie was good. I think the book was much better. Yeah. Um, this is based on the idea that some cultures have, that we make our own afterlife, that what we expect, what we we go through, you know, our trauma from life may actually be presented to us. If you remember in the movie, his wife was experiencing essentially a hell Um because she had committed suicide and she was depressed and all of that still stuck with her. So she would have to move past that in order to kind of experience what, what would be heaven, if you might call it that. Uh, so we don't really know. I mean, let's face it. We don't know for a fact what the afterlife's like. We're only getting this from people who, in all cultures, who claim spirit contact and the description from people on the other side. It's amazingly common and similar around the world But there is that element of how we as human beings, the mediums themselves and other people, interpret what they're perceiving or what they're given. Fact is, if you're shown something that you can't put words to, you have to come up with a way of describing it. And if the afterlife is so different from life here in the physical world, we might not have words, the mediums might not have words to even describe it to us. Trying to, like, describe a color to someone who has never been able to see. That's a good point. Let's go to Scott in Costa Mesa, California, west of the Rockies. Hey, Scotty, go ahead. Hey, Lloyd. Hey, George. Thanks for letting me be part of the conversation tonight. Absolutely. Hi there. Well, I had an incident that happened maybe a decade or so ago where I fell off a ladder about 15, 7 feet. 17 feet high oh, geez. and I landed on my head oh. and it was serious, but it could have been a lot, lot, lot worse. Sure. But as I was falling and I sort of can self analyze after the fact that I felt enveloped in protection, like a bubble. Well, yeah, like a, mm-hmm. a cocoon. Um, I just felt like and you were, I bet you fell in slow motion to you, too, didn't you? Well, I, I do, and I know that there's a scientific explanation for that. When your heightened senses, your brain goes into overload, and it actually, you remember every second of the mm-hmm. terrifying situation. 
recall it, recall it, and that's why time kind of slows down. Did you split your head wide open when you hit? I did. Yes, I got some quite a number of stitches on the top of my head. I bet. Oh, um, but I've had just over the course of my life, I've always felt sort of watched or looked after. I never knew my grandparents, and that was always something I've always wanted and wished for. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like we do have um, protection if we want it kind of thing. And do, you, was, do you have to ask for it, Lloyd? Well, you know, it, it is. In some cultures, um, people believe that they have ancestors or relatives watching over them at all times. Uh, this is a cultural thing across culturally you find from time to time. Uh, but people do sometimes feel that, especially someone in the family line, a grandparent especially, may be sticking around to watch over you. Uh, there have been many cases of people who have survived falls or other types of, of accidents where they came out of it in ways that just baffle everyone. It's like they were somehow in a cocoon, like you describe, or some bubble uh, and that may have come from outside, or it also may have come from from the individual, because we do have psychokinetic potential, also mind over matter potential, to even protect ourselves in those circumstances. At the at the moment of death or near death, do relatives that have been deceased always show up? Uh, no, <laughs> there are plenty of people who are, who are in the process of dying in hospice, and they don't ever have that deathbed vision experience. Um, or maybe they do, and they just don't want to talk about it. And and obviously, for other people at the at the moment of death, um, unless they survive that moment of death, we or can communicate back through a medium, we really don't know. When reincarnation occurs, mm-hmm. what happens to that ghost from that previous life? That's a very very good question. Um, well, first of all, uh, we hear different things from different psychics and mediums. It seems that wherever it is, the afterlife, whatever the afterlife is, there is some timelessness to it. It's, it's, think of it as outside of time and space in some respects. So if there's the ghost of um, my grandfather, for example, who died in the late 80s, uh, if he was still sticking around now, um, I assume he has, he, I did have an experience with him after he died, but then nothing. So I'm assuming he's on the other side. Whatever that is, if he reincarnated and I, I still could ask a medium to try to talk to him, I might be talking to him in the equivalent of 1989. Uh, because That's interesting. It just connects with different time periods. That's one of the things they've told me. But, you know, we, we tend not to have uh, reincarnation cases, which we work with mainly with kids who remember previous lives, and we tend not to have ghosts of those people showing up anywhere. Let's uh, take a quick break, Lloyd, and come back with final calls in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. On our next Coast to Coast program, Doc Wallach from criticalhealthnews.com joins us, so make sure you're part of the program, and then we'll talk a little bit about UFOs on Coast to Coast. And welcome back. Our final segment with Lloyd Auerbach. His websites are all linked up at coasttocoastam.com, including the latest one for his books. It's rainyandday.com, and we've got it linked up for you at Coast to Coast AM because it's not spelled the way you think it is. Right, Lloyd? That's right. All right, back to the calls. Let's go to Elisa in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to the show. Hi, Elisa. Hello, George. Hi, Lloyd. Good to talk to you tonight. 
I have several things going on here, so I have a couple of questions. Sure. Um, the first one is, I'm not, I'm not sure what you do on TV. It's been about 20 years since I've had one, so I can't make any reference to that. You haven't had but, a TV in 20 years? But, um, but, yeah. Over but that. you've got radios, right? Yes, yes, I do. All right. Good girl. Yes, I do. Um, okay, so I've picked up several uh, spirits, ghosts, entities, uh, attachments, whatever you want to do, what you want to call them. Um, and um, my question is, how? what advice could you give me to help them to cross? They say they don't know how long they've been here or dead or where it is that they are. Mm-hmm. They don't see any light. They see no tunnel. They see darkness. And they don't even know how long that they've been there. But how can I help them to cross or, you know, move beyond where they seem sure. stuck from? That's my well, first question. Okay. That, that's a good question. I, and um, I'll give you the advice that several of the mediums I've worked with have told me. First of all, the reason they're not, you know, the whole idea of seeing the light is because of pop culture. <laughs> so there may not actually be a light. We don't really know how that works, but we hear that from, a, from some of the mediums and other psychics that work with and even some of the witnesses. So the, the thing that they need to do, cause they're, because they don't see the light that they are expecting to see, there's probably a fear factor as to what's next for them. Uh, remember, these are people. So what they need to really do is just kind of relax and literally stop. They need to let go. They need to just assume that something is going to pull them in the right direction. And if they feel, feel pulled in any way, shape, or form, they need to go with it, regardless of what they are afraid of. Uh, so it's a fear factor that they have to get past. We can't really push them that way, um, but you can kind of give them the proverbial mental kick in the, in the, in the butt to move on in that way. But it works. It does tend to work. That's what we hear from people. Now, there's another possibility if you want to just get them out of the house, which is to ask them the simple question, which we've done, where, you know, they don't want to move on, but they, they also don't, you know, you also don't want them in your house, which is, was there anything in your life you wanted to do, any place you wanted to go that you have never been able to go to when you were alive? That is asked of ghosts. Those, first of all, they're surprised that anybody asked them that question. And secondly, there's always something. There's always something we all had on our bucket list, a place we never got to go to. And they're not stuck in a location. Um, they're probably there because you can pick up on them, not because of the house itself. So they can go elsewhere of their own free, mind, free volition if they want to. Remember, they can take a plane if they wanted to, and nobody will stop them. Well, do we have some mediums talking about dusting your house with sage? Yeah, you know, the sage thing that's uh, with basically smudging it with burning sage. Unfortunately, in some respects, that's cultural appropriation. Now it's a, a, a particular Native American tradition, and there's a ritual behind that in the Native American tradition that is not being done when you just simply burn sage. Um, it is really about the intention behind that to clear energy out. It doesn't clear spirits so much. It clears bad emotion out of a, a place. It is your intention that you'd like to be not bothered that might at, kind of unconsciously ask the spirits to, leave, to move on or leave the house. But because they are people, if they are afraid, trying to help them is the right way to go as much as possible. Let's go to Jim, truck driving in upstate New York. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jim, go ahead. Hi, George. Hi, Lloyd. Hi. Hi. Um, I've had paranormal experiences my whole life from a child. When my grandfather died, was killed in an accident. That night, he visited me. I was talking to him, and my parents woke up, heard me talking to somebody, 
And my father got a phone call 15 minutes later that his father was killed in a car accident. Oh, my. And we were in New Jersey. But we bought a haunted farmhouse. I talked to George before about this. Yeah. And my question is about animals seeing spirits. Because when we, when we first bought the home, we, see, we were looking at the realtor's pictures, and the house was vacant. And we could see a clear picture of a little old lady looking out the master bedroom window. And then we showed the people at the closing. They were shocked because that was the person who owned the house for 65 years. And then the first night we spent in the house, in the master bedroom, my two dogs woke up in the middle of the night around 2 o'clock in the morning and started growling, and their back of the hair was up, and they were staring in a corner. Um, and I calmed them all down, said prayers and all that. And my one dog would just see spirits in the house. He would just watch something, walk right by him, and start barking at it all the time, you know. And, you know, I, my, as far as animals seeing, you know, seeing spirits that we can't see. You they're, know? they're pretty tuned in, aren't they, the animals, Lloyd? Oh, we've lost Lloyd, so call him back, Gina. Let me go back to you, Jim. That's... Jim, I'm convinced that these animals do have the ability. You there, Jimmy? Hello? Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, sure. I mean, these animals, we've lost Lloyd. We'll try to get him back. But the... Well, George, also, I, I've had an animal pass, and that night that he passed, one of our dogs, and two of the dogs are really close. We, put, we were all crying, you know, we put him on our back and closed porch, and then I succinctly heard his bark. He had a specific bark, and it was, light, it was a light sound, and I thought he came back to life. And we ran to the back porch, and he was still, he still passed. But as, I, as I, my other two dogs were next to me, they watched something walk past them. I seen them just look at something, walk past them. And then when we, I laid back on the couch, and my two dogs jumped on the couch with me, my hand was just laying, you know, I had my arm just laying off the couch. Yeah. I felt something just brush my fingertips Jeez. like that was him, you know. I also have a good Amityville story, too. We went, I, I went to the Amityville house. Why'd you do that? <laughs> um, well, why did that? I, we were going we to start a pony ranch for kids, like a charity thing. Yeah, the farm. that's nice. And I, and, I, and I found a great deal on a horse trailer out on Long Island. So I went out to Long Island. I bought the horse trailer. And I said, you know what? It wasn't that far from the Amityville house. So let's go look at, let's go see the Amityville house. Uh, so they don't like you stopping looking at the house. They yell at you, you know, the people there. The people so we pulled up in front of, We pulled up in front of the Amityville house. So they changed, they changed the address and they changed those creepy windows. So we pulled up to the Amityville house and I, we, I took a few pictures. And I looked at the pictures and it was a brand new state-of-the-art iPhone. And you could specifically see like this spirit activity in front of the house. Everything else was, was perfectly clear, but you could see like this spirit activity. It was like a ball of spirit activity in front of the house. No one could explain this. I showed this to a ton of people. Everything else in the picture is clear. And the funny thing is I told the person who I bought the, 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 the uh, horse trailer from, the priest that blessed the Amityville house with the fly incident was the priest right. baptized baptize this person when he was a baby. That's a small world. Lloyd, we were uh, talking about uh, animals and their receptivity to spirits. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sorry, but I got my internet dropped, so my digital phone died. Ah. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, 
the problem with animals, you know, first of all, dogs and cats do stare off into space. Sometimes they hear things in the walls. They hear higher-pitched sounds, and they get their attention goes. We, we don't know. There definitely are psychic animals. I mean, we have animals that sometimes react to what seems to be the spirit of someone they knew when they were when that person was alive. They're behaving the same way that they would uh, when the person was present in physical form. But a lot of people are asking, I ask this all the time, they're asking me, well, my dog seems to be staring at something, staring in a corner. Is there a ghost there? It's probably not that. It could be the electricity giving off, the wiring giving off noise. There's any number of things that can do that. Um, there are also animals, you know, we have in our history in parapsychology something called side trailing. And you hear about these stories where people unfortunately left their animal behind, their pet behind, they moved thousands of miles away, and somehow a few weeks later that dog or cat shows up, somehow trailing them, which they could not possibly have done by scent. So animals sometimes do have that connection and ability as well. Let's go to Glenn in Colorado, first-time caller. Welcome, Glenn. Go ahead, sir. Uh, I read a book a while back that is titled The Book of James, William James, that is, the father of psychology. Uh He said in that book, uh, near the end of the book, he says, your whole life would be for nothing if you did not survive death. There would be no, you know, you would not suffer sorrow or grief anymore but you wouldn't know joy or love either. And yeah, I mean, William James was, was not only a father of American psychology, he was also um, heavily involved and was the first president of the American Society for Psychical Research. Um, he was really involved in our field. So that kind of uh, discussion does make sense. Great old books. So some of those old books are classics. How, how did they know these things about the afterlife? Well, you know, spiritualism was very, very popular in the U.S., uh, in North America in general, and in Europe during the latter part of the 18, uh, 1800s. And the scientists who started our field were looking into that to find out if there was anything to it. So there, and there were scientists from, there was no field of parapsychology. So what ended up being developed was psychical research, which became parapsychology. But the people who came into that field were philosophers, were um, physicists, biologists, doctors. Mark Twain was a member of the Society for Psychical Research. Was he? All right. Charles Dickens actually was a member of the London Ghost Club, which was before, they weren't a research organization, but he did ghost investigations before the SPR even got started in 1882. So we have a real hit, rich history of people looking into this question and wondering about what's next and talking to people who supposedly have been communicating with people on the other side. Next up, Doc, Petaluma, California. Hey, Doc, go ahead. Hey, George. Hey, Lloyd. Hi. Yeah, I should be, uh, I should be dead myself. I've been in, I've got about 31 years of uh, borrowed time because I was in 70 wrecks between 16 and 36. How many? Seven? 70. 70? Yeah, oh total, I've totaled at least 50 cars. Somebody wants you back here. Well, I used to drink quite a bit, but now I, I used to, I saw my death when I was about 10 years old. I saw, you know, that I was going to be older. I thought I was immortal for a long time. So, but I kind of, you know, the fate isn't, you know, it's not stitched in stone. So that when I was about 36, I decided that 
they pulled my license. It was probably for the best. Mm-hmm. Now, when you go through 70 accidents like that, Lloyd, and you still are around to talk about it, they don't want you out there on the other side, do they? Right. <laughs> yeah, or, or you are protecting yourself to make sure that you stick around until that vision of yours comes true. I keep telling Daniel Brinkley, who was hit uh, three times and died, that they mm-hmm. keep sending him back. They don't want him. Right. He's rejected each time. Exactly. James, New York City, east of the Rockies. James, go ahead, sir. Hello? Hi, James. Yes, 2012, something strange happened to me in 2012. Um, I, I was sitting on the grass, and um, two um, lights appear on the grass, six inches long, one gold, one grain, and, and gave forth, both of them gave forth um Multicolored lights, you know, very um, different colored lights, and it was sp- like sparkling, like um, sparkle on the Fourth of July. Different colored lights was coming off of them, even black lights, and I was surprised. You know, I said, "Well, what is this? Can you tell me um, what did I see and why did I see it?" What did he see, Lloyd? My God, I. I really don't know. That doesn't really fall into any of the psychic phenomena that we deal with. And normally. it doesn't sound ghostly either. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. ET related? Yeah, I got an answer for you. Think it could be ET related? Um, ET related, it could be, you know, if, without more information. I mean, there's things like, you know, ball lightning and things like that, sort of plasma effects, which are unusual but natural, that might be related. It's hard to know. North Bend, Oregon. Lynn's with us. Let's get you in here real fast. Hi, Lynn. Hello. Yes, um, I was a registered nurse in USA and Canada, and I found medical hypnosis, which was curing everything from autoimmune diseases, cancer, everything they were giving drugs for. I wanted to talk to Lloyd about it. And, uh, and then um, Burns Emergencies, too, and there's no training for medical hypnosis. I mean, everything Big Pharma gives drugs for. They were healing and I was working with it, and uh, it evolved into soul therapies. And um, my first book was uh, um, uh, was Dreams, Past Lives, Holy Spirit, Your Soul. And the president mm-hmm. of the American Board of Hypnotherapy wrote the forward to it um, in um, Good for you. 1999. And um, uh, my my my. Army Captain Brother, and I helped start the Veterans for Peace in Oregon. I want to get veteransforpeace.org out there, and uh, codepink.org, too. Please get that out there. Okay, very good. We're almost out of time. Lloyd, I want to thank you for being part of the program. Where do people get Afterlife? They get Afterlife, and the other books I've written from Amazon.com. You'll find a lot of them on barnesandnoble.com or bn.com as well, and you can also order them through your bookstore for the most part. Uh, The... uh, Website for Afterlife and the other novel, Near Death, is www.rainyanday.com. Let's, let's not let four years go by this time, okay? Please, let's not, yeah. Thanks again. Lloyd Auerbach. For Dan Galanti, Gina Salvati, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean Ladisor, Stephanie Smith, Chris Boros, Tim Banal, George Knapp, and Ian Punnett. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.